0: To episode seventeen of Tea or Books, I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we will be comparing letters and diaries, um, and we will be looking at two works by Oscar Wilde. One is his novel, *The Picture of Dorian Gray*, and the other one is his play, *The Importance of Being Earnest*. Um, cool. But first of all, Rachel, how are you? What have you been up to? And what are you reading? Oh,
1: um, I'm it- very well, thank you. Um, I have just got back from a spa weekend, so I'm very relaxed.
0: That,
1: um, I mean, I was very relaxed until I went back to work on Tuesday, um, so that was lovely, and in the lovely Hampshire New Forest.
0: Oh, very nice.
1: Yeah, I even went on a bike ride, Simon.
0: Oh, that doesn't sound relaxing. <laughs> no,
1: well, it was relaxing at the time, but my bottom really hurts now, because um, oh. <laughs> I've got used to such activity, um, and I found the saddle quite hard, but um, that was nice. <laughs> Lots <laughs> of nice um, lake and trees and countryside in general, which is lovely. And a lot of swimming and basically lying around, which is lovely. Oh,
0: well, that bit sounds um, much nicer, yes. Yeah,
1: it was nice. So, I mean, that was for my uh, h- hen weekend, so that was nice.
0: Ah. To um, <laughs> so, clarify... A friend's Henry Kent.
1: Yes, not, <laughs> yes,
0: no, not, not an announcement for, there.
1: Um, for my future sister-in-law's Henrikens. Oh, lovely. Which was nice, yeah. So, um, what else have I been up to? Did, did some Shakespeare-y things in London for the 400th anniversary, which is quite nice. There's lots going on here.
0: Oh, yes, did you and- see all the place screening at once in
1: well no i did it fully intend on doing that but the day i was free to do it it was really cold and i just thought i can't be bothered um, <laughs> but i did watch some stuff online which i did feel was okay
0: well that's in the spirit of it yes
1: yeah exactly <laughs> so yeah it's all busy busy and um yeah, it's a very important day on friday because um well, two days time from this podcast being recorded anyway By the time people listen to this, I will be in my fourth decade.
0: dun 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 So uh,
1: I will have reached the big 3-0, which is, you know, it's fine.
0: (laughs) Said with a stolid and quite angry (laughs) resignation. (laughs) (laughs) It's happening,
1: so it's got to be fine.
0: When we started this podcast, we were both in our 20s. Come come the release of this one, not anymore. And we remember the title of the Persephone book, It's Hard to Be Hip Over thirty.
1: Yeah, well, we were never hip.
0: (laughs) I think it's fair to say that we didn't start out on the cutting edge.
1: (laughs) I mean, come on, I'm an English teacher and you've got a PhD in English literature.
0: (laughs) We could be cool, we just chose not to be. Yeah,
1: yeah, we're cool in our own way. (laughs) Countercultural.
0: Oh, I like that. That sounds better than losers. (laughs) 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 Oh, dear.
1: What have you been up to, Simon?
0: Well, I've also been away. Thankfully, not as far. It's not something that's ever appealed to me, I must confess. Um, And no cycling happened. But I did get to go and sit in a cottage by the sea in Cornwall with my family. um, And do essentially nothing but read. We went on one walk on the one day that it rained heavily. And I want the record to hold that... um, record estate, state that I said we should turn right and I was outvoted by my father and brother who took us many miles out of our way by turning left <laughs> at a certain juncture. So, I'm glad that's, you know, everyone knows that now. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mostly sat and read and I read five books, I think, as I was there for it the week. Be. It did include the incredibly short book called The Small Miracle by Paul Gallico, which is about 40 pages long, about a little boy who wants Francis for Assisi to heal his donkey. Um, hey. <laughs> there's that but there was the enormous book um, Catlin Moran's latest collection of essays or columns have you read Catlin Moran stuff
1: no I'm not a big fan to be honest
0: Simon are you not I, yeah. do, I, I love her but she appeals to my lefty feminist leanings so, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> which I assume you also have but perhaps ah, not
1: <laughs> no, I do have very I'm very lefty and feminist but you no know, she just doesn't float my boat
0: not fair enough horses for courses um, also a book I did not finish that was enormous that I was reading um, while I was there was DJ Taylor's The Prose Factory oh. if you come across that it's an overview of literature since 1918 um, which is a, a bold and ambitious task um, well, just
1: literature in general
0: well literary life in fact it doesn't write that much about any particular fiction but mostly about the people who are around it or dominating the discourses in any particular time and it's one of these things. It's quite clever in that he, you do get feeling he's doing a big overview of the period, but then he goes deep into particular people. So he goes for a, few, for a few pages. He'll go in depth into Hugh Walpole or J.B. Priestley or George Orwell or someone. Mostly men. There's a lot of yeah. He's he's not very. He doesn't look a lot at the women so far. Um But you, you, it's it is a good combination of breadth and depth. But, and I was quite angry about this. The most appalling referencing I've ever seen in a published <laughs> work. <laughs> it's just like, just, so there are no footnotes, and then in the, there's endnote sections where he just divides each chapter into like four sections, and we'll just vaguely write about things in them, so he's like for more on discussion of Priestley, why not look at this book? It's like you've quoted something without saying who said it, and without saying where I can find it. Oh, that's not, like, that's
1: not cricket really, is
0: it? It's It's not. <laughs> and I was... I feel like I'm going to write to him. I assume it's a him. I don't actually know. It Could be her, DJ, DJ Taylor. I know it is a him. There's a picture from the back. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, and he will no. I mean, if he's listening to this podcast, DJ, then <laughs> then know that it was not good enough. <laughs> I've also spotted a couple of errors, at least, <laughs> which makes me worry about the things that I don't know about. If all of those errors error strewn as well. No one confuses the book society and the book of the month club on my watch and gets away with
1: it. This is turning into rather a scathing review. (laughs) It is,
0: but I'm enjoying it nonetheless. (laughs) Uh, So did you get any reading done whilst lying down and and being pummeled by people?
1: Apart from a very dog-eared copy of Good Housekeeping magazine, no. (laughs) That was uh, by my bed. But um, no, I'm currently reading The Years by Virginia Woolf, which I've been doing so far. Actually,
0: yeah. Actually, were well, you not expecting to?
1: No, because I thought it was going to. Because I know it's like her last book, and I wasn't sure if it was going to be. I I I thought it might be more traditional. Um or it was either gonna be super traditional or it was gonna be like the waves and I and I couldn't remember which type it was and thankfully it's traditional and not like the waves. <laughs> um yeah, it's it's interesting. It's one of those books that has absolutely no plot whatsoever, but it's I enjoy that sort of thing. So I'm I'm just steeped in Victorian atmosphere and I'm enjoying it.
0: Yeah, yeah I have read it. Um and I remember absolutely nothing at all about it, except at one point someone sit, stands by a window. That's all I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> that apparently That's hit home. A lot
1: standing by windows. Um, Is that a uh, theme? Theme. <laughs> okay. It's the story of the Pagetta family over several years. So I'm still in the Victorian era at the moment, but presumably, I think it goes up to the 1940s. Apparently, so. And it's a very large. I think it was
0: published in 1938 or something, wasn't it? <laughs> I
1: mean, yeah, it goes up to the present day of when well, yeah. it.
0: Okay, lovely.
1: one of those ridiculous Victorian families where there's so many children you can't actually remember how many there are. Perfect. <laughs> I think. Well, I think you'd like it if you read it again.
0: I intend to. I intend to read it for Havnalli's read along or wolf along, rather. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I can not remember which month that falls into. Because last month we were supposed to read her first and last books or one of them, which is the Voyage Out and Between the Acts, and I meant to reread the Voyage Out, but.
1: I've totally good read heart. both of those. I feel like I'm inadvertently taking part in something which never happens to me, which is
0: great. <laughs> well, check it out. You can go and, go and keep them posted. <laughs> yeah. um, I did join in the first month where you were supposed to read one of the most famous ones and I reread To the Lighthouse. That was fun. But I keep meaning to read Night and Day. It's the only one of hers I've not finished. Oh, it's finished. really good. Man. I think we talked about that in early one, didn't we? Yeah. Yes. One one day I will. Well, in fact, again, last month I meant to read it, I think. But never mind. <laughs> Soon, perhaps I don't know. <laughs> At some point. At some point. Um, next, on my radar is actually. Have you come across Apollo? It's, an, it's a new reprint imprint from Head of Zeus, um, and they've just they've brought up a very eclectic mix of books. And the two that I asked them to send me, which they very kindly did, were um, I think my glasses on. <laughs> is my second, there they are. Delta Wedding by Eudora Welty and The Lost Europeans by Emmanuel Litvinoff. Oh. Um Welty, wealthy, I love. Um Emmanuel Litvinoff I'd never heard of, but I thought it looked interesting.
1: Wow, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts.
0: Um uh, they will come at some point. <laughs> 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 right, so we um in fact, I, oh, I've even got a segue there. Eudora Wealthy wrote great letters. Let's go into letters versus diaries. <laughs> <laughs> <That's quite> brilliant. <laughs> Because there's one very good collection of letters I did read was the letters of Eudora Welty and William Maxwell, which was called "What There Is to Say We Have Said," I think, something like that. Yes. Um, which, um, is is I read because my favourite collection of letters was, also includes William Maxwell. Um, is the letters of William Maxwell and Sylvia Townsend Warner, um, called "The Elements of Lavishness," which I think I probably recommended on this podcast before when we have mentioned him in the past um it's i you've not read the element of lavishness have you
1: i haven't no. no
0: oh it's just it's one of those collections that you just each letter feels like it's got the quality of a short story or something it's um i think that's what in fact that's where the title comes from the element of lavishness it was one of them was talking about writing letter feels like a lavish way of using your gifts as a writer just sort of throwing it out in the ether to be read once or, as later happened, to be published in a collection. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're both such good writers, especially when it comes to the minute and the sort of everyday, that they can't help but write brilliantly, even if they think they're just writing chattily. Yeah. And it's such a it's such a lovely, wonderful collection.
1: I'm going to have to read
0: it. You are? Um But yes, do you, you, before I go more in depth about ones that I love, do you read letters and diaries often?
1: No, I wouldn't say often, and I tend to dip in and out rather than to read them through as a whole Hmm. chunk. Um, I mean, I feel a bit uncomfortable with diaries because, well, in fact, I feel uncomfortable with both of them, to be honest because you never know whether they actually wanted them to be published or not.
0: Mm -hmm. It's the age-old problem, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and it feels a little bit like you're rummaging around in someone's knicker drawer. You know, it's like, oh, you probably didn't want people to know this about you, or you didn't want this to be said. But then I think probably with diaries, there is certainly amongst people who were famous when they were writing them, I think I always get the feeling that they kind of had an eye to them being published at some point.
0: Some of them definitely. I think, in fact, was it Virginia Woolf who was, like, redrafting her diaries for publication yeah. when she died? Yeah. So, How some of do
1: the- writers do that?
0: Yeah. I, I, it is a really difficult quantity because I love reading letters and diaries and I always have one on the go um, of one or other type. Um, and I just sort of shut that part of my mind off where I think this is a private matter. Um...
1: Yeah, I think I need to do that more because they are fascinating and they really I love it especially when you read writers' diaries and also letters and you get an insight into their writing processes and how they think about things and where they get their inspiration from. Um, and also, like, connections between, between writers, because, for example, you know, William Maxwell, I would never have said, oh, him and Sylvia Townsend Warner must have been such great friends, because... You just unexpected, not
0: expect it, would you? Yeah, yeah,
1: you wouldn't. It's really unexpected. And I think those, seeing those unexpected relationships and also seeing that sense of community that these writers found with one another to communicate and to share ideas and to share just, like, the everydayness of life is really, really interesting and also inspiring at the same time, because you think, well, actually, they were just ordinary people, and, you know, they had ordinary worries and, like, petty things that they wrote to each other about as well. Not everything was always um, high-polluting. And-,
0: and the reason they started writing to each other is because it was when William Maximo- Maxwell was editor at the New Yorker, and she and was sending him short stories. Um, which started off as this professional relationship, but became much more than that. And it, it it's this, this thread continually going through it, where he is not only writing about his wife and children, and she's not only writing about her, her partner and her life, but the is also sending back a story or sometimes rejecting a story or sometimes saying can you change this And or she's writing about how she's getting along with certain things it's this wonderful mix of and, and so impressive that they managed to combine that professional relationship and a personal relationship because yeah. I can't imagine being on hugely friendly terms who, so, with someone who every few months rejects a story I've written <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's really difficult actually and I think that's very testament to William Maxwell's personality because everything I've read about him people were like, oh he's such a wonderful person, Mm -hmm. knew how to phrase things and I love how you get to know the personality behind the person that you've been reading so I think you can tell a lot about a person's personality through their fiction writing um, because there is a sort of current of morality and things that people notice that you can tell that's who they like as a person Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, being having that curtain drawn aside and getting a glimpse into someone's inner self is really lovely. Um, but I, there's also, I mean, I don't just read writers' stuff. I really enjoy reading um, like historical letters and diaries as well. Like I, I do enjoy the Mitford stuff. As oh I
0: just, yes, of course. Uh,
1: very hilarious, often, but find them really difficult a lot of the time with all the acronyms they use and <laughs> names I lose track of who's who half the time
0: I was amused by my brother has a, a deep set aversion to the Mitfords um, which doesn't come because of you know Unity's Nazism or Diana's fascism or any of that but mostly because they used to refer to the Queen Mother as cake <laughs> <laughs> and that apparently was where the line in the sand was drawn for Colin <laughs> like, exactly. this I will not tolerate <laughs> but, <laughs> whereas oh I I loved that collection of letters so much That's after the um, Maxwell and Tanzan one letters those are my favourite it's just we've talked about it before but this wonderful societal record but also just so sad as <laughs> one by one the sisters die and there are fewer what? people writing <laughs> um, I found that with another collection I really enjoyed The Letters of Elizabeth Myers who was a very minor novelist she was married to one of the Powis brothers um, and in fact the ending novel I read by her A uh, well of Leaves wasn't particularly good <laughs> but but the letters are great, but, um, whoever, I think it was her husband who edited them, Littleton Powers, um, who'd ordered them by correspondent. Uh, so you, you just kept getting to the end of these letters, and and she died very young, and so you keep getting her dying as, as you got to the end of the, the letters with a particular correspondent. So okay. over and over again, you had to relive her illness and death It's <laughs> like, a, Littleton, this is, this is unbearable.
1: <laughs> I'm just dead again. Yeah, like, and
0: again, and again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh but I, I do find with um, any sort of edited version, I'm always just wondering what's been left out. Like with the Mitford letters, I think they represent a tiny percentage of the letters they had written to each other. I just want there to be more and more.
1: Yeah, so, like, I think, and that's something that upsets me about, um, you know, modern life, Is that we're not going to have these records anymore because everyone does everything via email or text message and no one prints them off and no one keeps anything. So you are going to lose that richness of everyday discussion about pointless things. But I also think, how long must people have spent hand-writing letters to each other?
0: I know, like,
1: an extraordinary
0: amount. I just, I can't remember where I read this, but I was reading... um, Oh, I think it was in Eleanor Perini's memoir, More Was Lost, which I just read on holiday as well, where it said someone came to stay who had kept up a correspondent with a hundred or more different people, and so basically spent their entire time sending letters after people. <laughs> where is this? Yeah, I find, I've been doing this thing this year of trying to write a letter a week to different people, which I'm horribly behind in, but, um, I find that I'm saying the same things to everyone, because I don't do that much. I <laughs> I've got not that much news to share. <laughs>
1: I struggle to understand what people would have had to say all the time, but I suppose it's like the pointless stuff you send a text message about. Like, do you yeah. want to come come and do this with me this weekend? Okay, sure. But you had to write a letter about it.
0: Or maybe they just copied le- gossip from each other's letters. Be like, well, you, you wouldn't believe what's happened to Sandra. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> But it's you know, it is interesting and it's also that like, I love reading historical diaries and letters from the perspective of you know our uh, ability to see things from you know having I can't express myself today at all from uh, we've got hindsight whereas they don't yes. so for example um I'm quite obsessed with Russian history and um I love reading anything to do with the Romanov family and their diaries and letters where they're just completely oblivious to the fact that their whole world is about to fall apart um, is really, really interesting. And also really heartbreaking as well, because you think you are just literally walking into the abyss and you had no idea. Dad uh, um, so
0: those... was reading Simon C. Bagmont new book, or is it new, his book about the Roman house while are on holiday, so he's sharing excerpts from it. With
1: I, us. I really want to read that. I haven't bought it yet, but oh. uh, I, knew I wouldn't have time, but I'm saving it for the summer.
0: Well, Arbica can recommend <laughs>
1: Yes, but I mean it's it, it's my absolute fascination. So so I mean I love I must say that I think letters and diaries are a really great addition to the your kind of reading of fiction and non fiction. I think they really add an extra dimension. I know that lots of people are like, oh, you shouldn't read books from knowing too much about a writer's past and stuff because you'll put too much of them into it. But I don't think... I think the more you can put, bring to something, the richer the experience.
0: Yeah, I, it is one of those things where um, they say it can colour... Well, I find it can colour my view a, a bit. In that, For example, David Garnett, who also, coincidentally, was friends with Supersterns and Warner, and they, their letters were published... Or, she obviously saved most of her for William Maxwell they weren't as good <laughs> but um reading I, I've not read his collected letters um but I read in the biography Sarah Knight's read of him they quoted lots of them and he just seems such a terrible person from those letters <laughs> I can't remember if I spoke at the time um I was reading it but the ones that come to mind were he had lots of affairs and was very open about those right. his wife had one affair his wife and at that point she wasn't dying of cancer but she did whilst he was still having affairs um she had one affair, and he wrote to her saying, "For for you to be upset about me having affairs is as absurd as if you're upset about me crying. But for me to be upset about you having affairs is a matter of preservation." He was so angry that she'd had this one affair compared to his hundreds, and it's just one of those things where I was thinking, "David, I still love Lady into Fox. It's a great novel, but you were a terrible person, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I really don't like you."
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that's that's true as well because you know. I think you can read the Mitford letters and read some of their very questionable beliefs and be like, Oh, I'm not really sure I'm comfortable with with kind of liking you anymore. Um, And also like Virginia Woolf's attitude towards people of a lower social class and Mm. her servants and all the rest of it, that can be quite off-putting and can make you think, actually, I don't really want to read your books, but there does, I think there does need to be a separation because also when you're reading letters and diaries, these are things that people have dashed off without thinking about it and also to people that they that know them um, and I think mm. you know you wouldn't always necessarily you know we all say things that we don't necessarily 100% believe or, or would never dream of acting upon yeah. um, and I think you know yeah Virginia Woolf wrote stuff that made her out to be an awful snob but was she cruel to people of the lower classes? No she wasn't you know that's just her opinion shared amongst friends so you do have to take things with a pinch of salt as well
0: speaking of dashing things off I, I, I've I always felt so dispirited at, at the attempt of my, my um sort of half-held ambition to be a writer myself when I read Virginia Woolf's diaries because you I'm know, thinking she just dashes these off and they're so brilliant <laughs> she's just, what's the point of anyone trying to write if Virginia Woolf writes write so well when she's just doing something that perhaps she didn't think anyone would see perhaps she would But um, yeah. if I ever write a diary it's just like either went to see Friends today it was nice or just <laughs> sort of moaning about feeling ill or something (laughs) Um, but I certainly even though I have hopes of at some point being published I certainly don't want my diaries to ever be published that would be horrifying
1: no, nobody thinks
0: that (laughs) Um, do you have any other favourites that spring to mind? I'm
1: just trying to think Um, no, I mean I don't I mean I don't have masses of them I have Virginia Woolf's Diaries and Letters and I have the Mitford's letters, and I have, like, historical stuff. Um, I really would like Jane Austen's letters, but I've never found it for a reasonable price. I'd love to read those.
0: I have read those, and um, I really liked them. There's, a, there's sort of a reputation for them being really boring, but I found them fun and intra and just quite funny, um, which is weird, because all the criticism about them suggests they're, they're tedious, but... Um, and a lot of them were destroyed by her sister, so we, who knows what's in those. But, um, what I did find interesting is, I don't know if you come across whenever people talk about Jane Austen, they always talk about her saying, um, you should write about three or four families in a small village. I'm going to paraphrase these things horribly, right. I'm sure. Um, or saying, I write on my two inches of ivory. Those are the two big things that people always talk about when they talk about how she viewed her craft. And they're in her letters. And in context, they are clearly sarcastic. I <laughs> think this has like gone down as, how Virginia Woolf viewed writing. It's like, no, she does not <laughs> she, like, she is being very self, dryly self deprecating and doesn't mean us at all.
1: <laughs> but, yeah. I think that's. I would really love to read them because I, I think they would provide a real insight into her work. Um, and I just think, yeah, they're really a nice way of finding out things about people who are dead and we don't have, you know, masses of interviews with them like we do with modern day writers. We don't have the kind of ability to understand exactly what they thought about this or that or what their political views were or through any other means than their letters and diaries. And you can get so much richness from them. And I think even if people say, oh, well, you shouldn't really bring them to the text too much, if it helps to illuminate something or to help you see a different perspective of something they've written, I think it's brilliant. I
0: hope them. I just love it when they talk about writing and that's why I like A Writer's Diary the um, edited collection of Virginia Woolf's diaries where it's just about when she's writing um, I like reading the other entries of her, well, but that's just so nice just to be able to look at the progression of a novel through different diary entries or something like that
1: yeah and also gives you hope because you see you know Virginia Woolf struggled then I'm fine
0: well that's true that is true <laughs> Um, another of my favourites, um, have you read, I think actually I may have bought it based on your recommendation, Nella Last's Diaries? Oh
1: yeah, no, I have,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, I love those just for, because like most people who published, have published Lesson Diaries understand are will be famous for something else, whether that be writing or not. Yeah. I, I love the fact that with those it is just this every woman, although it's heartbreaking that she thinks she's not talented enough to be a writer in them. we are thinking, you've got such a natural way with words, you would have made a great writer. In some ways, you have made a great writer, with just without realising that's what you were doing.
1: Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? And I think it's so nice as well um, to be able to read diaries of, of ordinary people. And I think there's actually become quite a vogue for this at the moment. I know um, I saw it in a bookshop, but it was enormous, and I couldn't handle the thought of it. But it's something called A Notable Woman, which is about... Mm. The letters, letters, or diaries—can't remember of a of an ordinary woman. And I was reading a review in the Guardian this weekend about a new book. Um, it's called, I think, "A Discarded Life." It was absolutely fascinating article about this man. He, the writer who who wrote this book, is a collection of diaries from the nineteen forties up to the present day. And this guy, his guy's friend, he's a writer. He lives in Cambridge, and he's a writer anyway. Um, and his friends found this whole box, like, boxes and boxes of these mildew diaries in a skip. Oh, wow. And they're like, hey, we found these, seeing as you're a biographer, do you want them? And he was like, okay. Um, and he carried them around with him for, like, ten years, moving house and stuff. And eventually his girlfriend was like, listen, can you just, like, sort these diaries out? Otherwise, I'm tracking them.
0: <laughs> um,
1: and so he started looking through them, and he found this absolutely, like, fascinating diaries, but because there was no identification in them whatsoever of who this person was or what gender they were, he had to really comb through them all and gradually piece together this life. All
0: these fascinating
1: discoveries, like things that he'd assumed about the genders of people. He later on realised he was wrong and about the age of people. And then the best part was So he got to the end and realised that he must be missing quite a lot of diaries. And he also realised that the person who'd written them was still alive.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And managed to track them down. Oh, my gosh. They gave their permission for them all to be published. So I really want to get this book because it sounds amazing.
0: It does sound amazing.
1: And it's just an an ordinary woman who's now quite elderly. But just the rawness and the passion, they put some of the extracts in the article of her describing just the general difficulty of life. It's just amazing, and I thought, actually, I would really love to read more diaries of ordinary people, because ordinary lives are the most interesting, really.
0: Yeah, and they do seem to have, because Nella last was a mess observation project, and they seem to have published a few of those as well. Yeah. Um, people just recording their everyday life for this project that, um, that also slightly worries me, because I'm now part of that project myself. Oh! <laughs> um, I can't remember if I've said that on the podcast before, but, um, when I, re- it was after I read Nella last at some point, um, I discovered uh, that it's the Mass observation Project still exists and they were looking for people who... Well, they wanted particularly men under 40 who didn't live in London. So I was like, oh, well, that's me. (laughs) So (laughs) Tick, tick, tick. (laughs) Um, And it's no longer done in the same way it was then where they just asked people to write about their lives. You now get given certain topics once every three months and um, some questions about them. But, yeah, my... My thoughts were going into an archive which is kept anonymous for fifty years, I think, they said. Which for most participants will be after they after they die. It's quite possible I'll still be alive in fifty years time. <laughs> so, That's
1: really exciting. You could have your
0: I Could have my discarded life.
1: <laughs> it would be amazing.
0: Or more likely they'll just not be able to read my handwriting and just shred them up. For some reason, I decided to handwrite them mostly instead of typing them, because I'm like, this makes me feel more like Nella Last. <laughs> 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 like, that's sweet, but we're bidding this. <laughs> this is rubbish. <laughs> um, what about letters versus diaries? In, before you make your decision, what, what do you think like, the differences are between reading them?
1: Well, I think, like I said, I think more with diaries there's more of a sense certainly with more famous people that they knew that they were going to be published Mm. and I do wonder how much of them have been crafted with that in mind Um, personally I prefer letters because they're a part of a conversation and I like getting the perspective of the other person they're writing to um, and you feel more involved in kind of an intimacy whereas diaries obviously it's a conversation with yourself so there's less of a sense of the wider world that they're part of and the, the different relationships they have with other people so personally I get more pleasure from reading letters
0: Yes I I agree with, with the caveat because I love it when you get the two sides um, where it is two people or like with Mitford's, lots of people um, I get re- quite annoyed like with Virginia Woolf's letters where you only get one side yep. and it's, incredible, I, this is, it's interesting very interesting but I just don't know what the other person is saying <laughs> and I just try and work backwards from that um which is yeah, it's frustrating. <laughs> um at least for the diary you, you'll always have what you need there. And it just in some ways feels more complete because trying to track down someone's letters after they die must be a nightmarish task. Yeah. Um
1: Well I you couldn't do it now.
0: Yeah, you can do it now. And I think it unless must be
1: unless you did emails, I suppose, and someone had kept them all.
0: Yeah, I don't know if there have been any collected emails of anyone yet. Maybe we've not got that stage yet. No, well, in the <laughs> collected the next WhatsApps. Years, I
1: guess we'll know. I mean, in the next twenty years, I guess that's what will happen.
0: Yeah, well, if Kim Kardashian can publish a book of selfies, then who knows what will happen next?
1: What is the world coming to, really? What
0: is it coming to? I ask you. <laughs> um, but yes, I think. Because my absolute favourites are letters, um, I'm also going to agree with you and pick letters from the two. Wow,
1: well, I love it when we're in agreement.
0: It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> right, second half, if I don't think there's anything um, that links the two, so we'll be segwayless. <laughs> <laughs> Is uh, The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde and The Importance of Being Enough by Oscar Wilde. Um, Pick one and give us a quick intro, Rachel.
1: Oh, okay, well, so as I just read the picture of Dorian Gray, then I can quite confidently do that. <laughs> um, I'm sure many people have read this, but basically it's a story of Dorian Gray, who is a very attractive young man who's also very rich, got everything going for him, very nice, had lots of friends. Um, and he's particularly friends with a painter who is obsessed with him and paints this portrait of him that's beautiful and perfect, um, and he has it up in his uh, Dorian has it up in his living room, and at the same time he makes friends with um, a friend of the painter, Hen- Lord Henry Wotton, I think his name is. Yeah, um, is that right? I think um, so. Who kind of makes is the sort of person who blith- like blithely breezes through life um, quite happily, but the, the things he says to other people kind of destroy their lives by making them think about things in ways that they probably shouldn't. Um, and Dorian Gray basically decides to, is kind of lured into doing, uh, believing that aesthetics is and beauty is all that matters in life. And um, it then leads him down a path of self-destruction, taking other people with him. And this is all recorded in the portrait of him that slowly, um, that takes on all of the, the ageing and the damage and the horribleness that should be marked on Dorian's face from what he's done. Um, And it's, yeah, it gets worse and worse and worse as it goes on. I won't say what happens if you haven't read it, but it's, um, yeah, it's quite a dark, dark book in the end.
0: Beautifully summarised. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) Once want to be honest, um, again, I'm sure many people are familiar with this, but um, to play with sort of, idle young gentleman Algernon Moncrief and his friend John Worthing at the beginning known as Ernest um John wants to propose to Algernon's cousin Gwendolyn um but there is an issue that he cannot prove his parentage because he was found as um (laughs) I'm not going to. Maybe I will. Yeah. Stand in a handbag, <laughs> <laughs> as a child, um, and Gwendolyn's aunt, Lady Bracknell, um, objects to this match happening without him being able to prove um, his parentage. Because yes, born or at any rate bred in a handbag, I believe she described it as something like that. Yeah. Um, second, second plot when he goes off to his. Um, a state in the country with his where his ward Cecily lives um Algernon follows him, pretends to be called Ernest um and quite quickly falls in love with cecily um There's much confusion where everyone thinks they're in love with someone called Ernest, but no one called Ernest exists, and, <laughs> <laughs> and everything of course is beautifully resolved in the end by shan shan't say how in case there's anyone out there who somehow has yet to find out what happens in the fun being Ernest <laughs> um Kick us off. What do you what do you think of them? <laughs>
1: well, I love Oscar Wilde's like comedic plays in general. So this one, Lady his Fan, as well, uh, absolutely hilarious. I think the importance of being honest is, you know, makes me wet myself with laughter every time I read it or watch it. It's just so funny, and it's there's so many great one-liners in there that you think are so clever that you've come up with these lines and the witty repartee between them, and it should mm, be ridiculous, mm. but somehow it kind of it all makes sense within the the plot of what happens, and I think he's so good at caricature of capturing those sort of upper class people, especially older older women and um, kind of like idle young men. Um, he captures them really well and makes them ridiculous, but not ridiculous so that they're unbelievable. Um, and he's a real, I think, quintessential picture of that kind of late nineteenth century. Upper class idol society, and he's very good at sending it up as well, even though Mm. he was part of it too. Um, I think the picture of Dorian Gray, I didn't really enjoy it very much actually, and it really wasn't because I literally was I think I had read it when I was a lot younger, but I'd forgotten entirely what happened, and I found it very dark. And also, like, I didn't, it was like Lord Henry's character, it just felt like a succession of one liners, Mm. and it felt like it should be. It, it, it was kind of half a play that was really funny with this character in, and everything he said was like a one-liner. It didn't hang together as a as a dialogue. Um, and then half this really dark morality tale. Um, and it, the two parts didn't quite come together for me. I didn't think it was an entirely successful book, which I know is a very uh, bold statement to make about something. Yeah, it <laughs> um, But yeah, it didn't really, it wasn't, I expected something brilliant and I just felt it was it was overwritten. There was too much, you know, description of things that weren't really important. And, um, yeah, I just didn't find the characters convincing, really.
0: Well, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I l- love both of them, but I must confess I, it's been a long time since I read Picture of Dragon Grey. I read it a couple of times, but I was about, I think I was 16 and 19, something like that. So it's been over 10 years since I last read it. Um I do agree with you that it is a succession of one-liners, <laughs> and um, it got maybe perhaps a, l- a little wearying. Yeah. But and perhaps I'd be less tolerant for it now than I was then. At the time, I was just like, I was just thinking, this writing is so funny and so cleverly each sentence is so cleverly structured and balanced, um, and the way he gets towards the end of an epigram is so clever. But I think, um, yes, it's definitely. He he didn't believe that less is more. <laughs> he he was putting it all in there. In fact, I think large chunks of the of some of the um, dialogue is actually just taken out of one of his plays. <laughs> I forget which one. There was, there's only lines we thought, "Oh, that was good." I'll pop it in this conversation as well. <laughs> um, but as you say, also quite dark. If if not. Ever particularly specific about what the dark deeds are? No, um, I think he yes, mentioned.
1: It's very, yeah, it's very skimmed over.
0: And I think he mentioned I his trial for indecency, in fact, where he said, "Like everything dark and this is in the minds of the reader." I probably didn't help his cause particularly. But, okay. um, it's it is an interesting combination of dark and light because the things that he does even if we're not sure what they are do destroy all people's lives and it's quite a dark concept that this that what you do can sort of mark you physically even if it's a portrait of you it seems seeing it's transferring to this portrait like yeah. looking more twisted and more evil um, I think that that sort of contrast he builds between virtue and appearance is quite bizarre maybe like I think there's something of classical myth in there as well but um I don't know it's it's it is, it is a really interesting mixture of of the light and dark, which in Points of being earnest, there's nothing dark there at all, really yeah. <laughs> um and you know there's issues of abandonment and deceit and all, all these sorts of things could be dark, but not for a moment are they and the, and I love that play so much i think it's I think it's a play that's one of the few plays I think that you just cannot do it badly. I've seen. Quite a few performances of it, fr- from you know, David Suchet et al, and down to amateurs, um, and indeed have been in a production myself. I saw that. <laughs> yes, well, an excerpt from it anyway, playing Gwendolen. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of my first appearances in a Thomas family contribution to the village stage. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, clip on earrings hurt people. Learn right that <laughs> the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> but um <laughs> perhaps I shouldn't say it for our performance <laughs> but for all the other performances I've seen it's just the lines are so good and the writing is so funny that you really can't do it
1: you badly. can't do really, can you
0: you can't lose it's just it's such brilliant writing and it's got two of my favourite scenes in any play one of which of course, is where Lady Bracknell is questioning him on what on his eligibility yeah. um to marry her niece, in which every line is gold, whether you know I could quit and quit many of them, and I will not do that. <laughs> um, um and my other favourite one is where Gwendolyn and Cecily meet for the first time, um and start off very friendly, become very angry and then become very friendly. Yes. Um which and the bit where they're being very angry <laughs> Um, is I realised when watching it recently essentially a dramatisation of The Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that comparison has been made by any scholars <laughs> There's a, there's a conference paper in there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's got my, one of my favourite lines in the play which um, Cecily says to Gwendolyn saying doubtless you have many calls of a similar nature to make in the neighbourhood <laughs> And since her call has been to proclaim that she's engaged to the same person, it's it's brilliantly scathing.
1: It's just, it is just too funny. And it's so true. And I think it's something that you can recognise in people around you even now. You know, those sorts of behaviours and the jealousy and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I do think that Oscar Wilde is a playwright, full stop. I don't think he ever should have gone into writing novels. Um, It's not his strength he's uh, like the king of the one-liner and it works so and of comedy which works so well on a stage and I think written into a book it just didn't work for me um and also I think his writing is too like it was too flowery I didn't and uh, there's a lot of words a lot of the sentences I was like this doesn't actually mean anything (laughs) Wow. it means nothing it's just words put together Fancy (laughs) fancy words together in a sentence um it just was yeah it was overblown like i got the moral message of it i was like great i see what you're saying here and this is important for us to to recognize of course but it was just heavy-handed i think i would say
0: um i did find even at the time when i did love it that there was one chapter somewhere in the middle that was unbearably tedious where it just described lots of jewelry i feel something yeah,
1: like that i completely skipped that bit
0: yeah um, rightly so uh, it's just nothing that's uh, that
1: self-indulgent actually and I was thinking to myself as I was reading it this would never have got published these days
0: No, I do remember my undergraduate tutor telling me that um, those pages that chapter was supposed to be like a jewel in the setting of the rest of the novel <laughs> maybe
1: whatever <laughs> 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 Let's not push uh, the literary criticism too far.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think whatever is probably the correct response. <laughs> um I think I do think the central idea of it is brilliant. I don't know yeah. if it has any um any sort of precedent in terms of, you know, portrait in the attic sort of thing. Yeah. I mean in some ways it's a bit like madwoman in the attic. Mm-hmm. Secrets hidden, out of sight, gothic tradition sort of thing.
1: I mean that's exactly what it is it's about you know our inner self being you know the this hideous monster that we keep hidden by our exterior and it is you know modern life isn't it yeah. we uh, uh, kind of get stuff to hide the fact of how we feel inside and it's not anything particularly ground-shaking I didn't think
0: uh, maybe I'm doing too much
1: I think probably you are doing him too much credit. I mean, it's a great idea, but I expected it to be because I'd only really remembered it from having watched Penny Dreadful, which I don't know if you've seen. I have not. Very good. Very good. Um, And new series starting this week for everyone at home listening. And <laughs> um, so I've got my favourite actress in it, Eva Green.
0: Shout out to Eva. Hi, Eva.
1: Eva, I love you. You're great. Um and it's in there is dorian gray is a character in penny dreadful um, yeah. and he's made out to be this very kind of evil um creature and also the, the in the which i and i expected this to be in the book cuz i'd forgotten about what happened in the penny dreadful basically if anyone looks at the portrait they will die
0: Oh, well...
1: <laughs> I expected that element to be in the book.
0: Did obviously.
1: you? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's disappointing. Because I thought it was, you know, a whole thing about if you... L- looking upon the evil in this portrait will kill you, if you see what I mean.
0: I see. I've got to, got to be honest with you, Rachel. I'm quite glad that wasn't in the novel. <laughs> 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 it sounds terrible.
1: No, honestly, it works. Okay. <laughs> is it
0: just? Is it just, like... The area around the portrait is strewn with corpses.
1: No, because it's kept he purposely keeps it hidden away because if he it, and he can't look at it either. Oh I see. That's the thing. He <laughs> can't look at it and if he looks at it, he'll die, that's the thing. Oh I see. Um so like if he is confronted with with who he really is, then he will die. Which kind of is what happens because um well actually I won't say just in case. Um I mean, metaphorically I think that's what happens. But not literally, if you see what I mean. Well, kind of literally, but at the same time, not literally in terms of the power of. There's not like something in the picture that's going to do it to him, but like you know, obviously, does it to himself. But
0: uh... I think we've done the opposite of spoilers now, where even people who have read it will be confused (laughs) about what happened to the end.
1: (laughs) Is that who? Um, Stop talking now. (laughs) Just talking nonsense. It's been a long day.
0: (laughs) Have you seen? um, uh, Well, I suspect probably not um, the film, because you know. it's terrible, don't. It's, not. <laughs> it's bizarre.
1: Accepted it's accepted to, but...
0: Yeah. Um, well, my abiding memory of it was seeing it in an incredibly cold cinema where I had to put on my jumper coat, hat, scarf and gloves and my teeth were still chattering and two old ladies at the back started just chatting to each other because we got bored halfway through. <laughs> but, but besides that, it's... What I do like about the novel is that, it, it, as I said, it is quite subtle. You don't know what he's done, whereas they replace that with, like, orgy scenes. <laughs> and then instead of it just being this portrait that is in the attic, it's sort of like a ghost. It sort of, like, swells around the room. Very bizarre. Oh. Whereas the film with Once being earnest, um, the, the Judy Dench one, I really did enjoy. That was fun.
1: Yeah, that's great.
0: Although I could have done without the singing. That felt out of place. Yes,
1: I mean extra singing is never appreciated, but yeah, you know, I love and I love the fact that that does translate really well, um, and it's also really great to teach. Kids love it. Yeah,
0: yeah, um, yeah. What do you what do you draw out when you're teaching it?
1: Um, more kind of the social context, but also talking about um, issues such as identity and um, you know. Jealousy, honesty, all that like appearances and deception, all that kind of stuff. Kids love it.
0: That's interesting because because I do think it was such a flippant play. Um, even that, yeah, I, did, I I would find it hard to analyse um, like bro- broader morals or things, but I guess there's a lot you can do about. Oh, so it's interesting very much in terms of, like, stage effects and, and yeah, dramatic you can irony look at it and
1: stuff. From, yeah, I mean, you can look at it from that perspective, but also I think it's really interesting to look at from the perspective of of social class and how people were treated depending on where they came from and, you know, like the whole fact he doesn't have a background, so therefore he's not considered as worthy as somebody who has comes from a good family and all that kind of stuff. Kids find that really interesting. Hmm. Um, I think mean, it's it's not as I mean they don't find it as hilarious as they should. <laughs> I think it is a play that is for older people. So I mean I would prefer to I normally prefer to teach JB Priestley over Oscar Wilde just because especially for the younger ones they get it more. But it's um yeah no it's it's good and I think the kids find it for, like the kids do find it funny especially when they watch the video for like the DVD first. Hmm. sort of see it and then they're like oh yeah no, I can see why that's funny it's the same as Shakespeare if you show them the film first then they get it and then they they understand where it's going so
0: that is impressive I think in the play that it is quite in some ways quite a convoluted plot and yeah. a couple of characters having two different names and yet the way Oscar Wilde writes it it never feels like you don't know what's going on or you know no. Any confusion to what anyone's feeling at any one time?
1: It's, I think confusion is is a, a rather a uh, habit of English drama because I mean, come on, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Who knows who who you know, <laughs> the Hermia, the Sander Demetrius? I was just teaching this today, and it got to the point where I was getting them muddled up, and I was like, right, okay, we need to stop now.
0: Uh, have you read A Comedy of Errors or The Comedy of Errors?
1: No, I think I've seen it, but I've never read
0: it. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> It's, it's two sets of twins, What one of whom is... I think, no, I think maybe they're servants of the other or something. The whole thing is just a series of scenes of one person turning up and the other person thinking it's the other twin. <laughs> um, and everyone thinks their twin brother has died at some point. In, let's see, I think. Um, and the whole thing can be cleared up at any time by, <laughs> by any single person saying, oh, wait, I've got a twin. <laughs> maybe that's what's going on. No one ever thinks to mention it. No one ever does. Uh, and that is so convoluted, you never know quite what's going on. <laughs> nor does anyone else. No one really cares. <laughs> it's like let's just get to the end of this <laughs> to see what happens. And deal with the fact that we've had one person playing both parts. <laughs> I don't know how we're gonna get around that. Stick a mirror on stage. It's apparently what someone did in one performance. <laughs> oh dear. Um <laughs> can we talk for a second about what a brilliant creation Lady Bracknell is?
1: Yes, she is amazing. And so I think typical of I think most most of us have had a grandmother like this. <laughs> I feel like we have like not a posh one, but just one who is just horrified by everything and have very, I very had that. strict um well, maybe you haven't, but I'm you know sure it has like I very haven't. strict ways of doing things and doesn't like um doesn't like it when someone doesn't fit their um perspective of what it should be, mm. Accepted. Or a family relative, let's say. An aunt. Sure. Some matriarch yeah. somewhere.
0: <laughs> I've met plenty of this sort of person in real life, for sure. Um, albeit not exa- as exaggerated, perhaps. You know, country gentry types. Yes. <laughs> um, and in some ways, she, she seems to me, even though she is in many ways quite different, to come from the same stable as Mrs. Danvers. <laughs> <laughs> not, like, and what do I mean by that? I, I guess I mean the sort of... Slightly, slightly a grotesque, but, um, and very over dramatic, but completely, I don't know, divas, basically, <laughs> the divas of their time.
1: Yeah, but at the same time with behaviour that is completely realistic, which is kind of frightening in many ways.
0: Oh, especially with Lady Ratner, perhaps, like, she was expressing attitudes that suddenly existed, wasn't she? Yeah, and exactly. Um, book just pithier than most people would have done.
1: She's no caricature. That's the scary thing about her. You know, she is a a real depiction of what many people... I mean, that's why I suppose we find it funny, because we're like, yeah, we've all known people like this, or there's elements of this in, you know, everyone's family, or everyone's had an experience where they've come across someone like her.
0: Yeah, I guess the the caricature caricature element, or not even caricature. This the step he takes it further is that she says everything she's thinking to everyone, yeah. and she has the power to make, you know, make their life choices based on what she's thinking. Um, yeah, I can't. I mean, in some ways, I can't help but admiring her. She's this <laughs> powerful, strong uh, woman in this male-dominated society. She's not going to let her husband tell her what to do. Um. But, I mean, she'll, obviously she's an awful person as well, but it's just, I think it's interesting that Wilde made her a woman rather than a man because the same, you know, choices could have been made by a male character, the yeah. same sort of, sort of influence, the fact that it's a female. There is in that whole last minute, gosh, is she his mother thing, I guess. That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, oh, it's wonderful. Speaking of her being a man though, I did see David Husey playing Lady Bracknell, rather, I, I didn't see it actually, I saw it, um, in the cinema. <laughs> they did a straight to cinema thing. Um, I didn't think he was that great, actually. <laughs> he sort of, I don't know. First of all, he's not in it that much because she only really appears at the beginning and the end. And I don't know. He just put on a funny voice, basically, <laughs> I've I the rest, really,
1: of it. I don't really see the point in doing that, to be honest. And I think that um, actually, what's great about that play is that, I mean, every it's a great part for a, for an older woman, which woman, which there aren't many great parts for.
0: That's a very good point. And, and many um,
1: our dearest actresses have graced the part with, with real skills, such as Dame Judy.
0: Such as Dame Judy. Um, and I assume at some point Maggie Smith has played
1: sorry, it. i Maggie Smith must have done it, and if she hasn't, she needs to do it soon. I
0: was going to say, it's the part she was born to play.
1: Yeah. <laughs> come on, get on it.
0: Yeah, come on, Mags. You're not getting any younger. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Done, now <laughs> it's finished, there's no excuse.
0: <laughs> yeah, what are you even doing? <laughs> 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 uh, dear. We love you, Maggie. <laughs> well, I, uh, I think I've made my choice perfectly
1: obvious.
0: Yes, yes Um. <laughs> I think you have. And it's perhaps unfair because I've read Slash scene and Ponds Ernest far more recently and more often than Dorian Gray, um, and should we read Dorian Gray? But my instinct is that I too am going to choose to Me*, honest. Not least because it provided me with my starring role on stage, <laughs> <laughs> in which I got engaged to my father. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it was village life. No one, no one better than <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. We-, <laughs> we are in complete agreement this week, Rachel. Tom? I
1: mean, it's such a rare occurrence, but
0: because it's your birthday <laughs> thanks <laughs> um, and next time everyone if you want to we well, probably can't do all the preparation for this one because there's a lot of them out there we'll be comparing Hercule Poirot and Miss Marple obviously both characters by um, created by Agatha Christie um, and we will decide what we're doing for the first half anon. yeah thank
1: you so
0: much for listening everyone thanks for listening bye <laughs>